Welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet, and I'm here in the studio with Laron Landis and the late Patty Fink. Hi, this is Patty Fink. Did you go on longer? Shalom. Now it is. Now you are. And I can't see Laron, so let me do some rearranging. Um, our guests are Craig Seligman. He's the author of the new book, Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag, and his husband, Silvana Nova. Welcome, guys. Thank you. And they are here from New York and flew in specially to do Lambda Weekly. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, we love guests who do that. Thank you. <laughs> we are privileged. Um, so the book is about a particular drag queen named Doris Fish. But this is timed so perfectly because this week in the Texas legislature, a drag bill, an anti-drag bill, got a hearing in committee. And it's a particularly nasty one where um, it, it forbids drag queens from performing in front of minors. And if they do, the minor can then sue and has 10 years to do it. It's the SB8 model of, of having bounty hunters in the general public no. at the ready to pounce on any opportunity to do moral, moral policing um, with the state support. If you're a drag queen, do you know what you were doing on a particular night 10 years ago? And who was in your audience? Well, not only so there's no defense. Not only that, is it the drag queen's <coughs> fault that the minor was in the audience? Right. They may not even know that they're there. It's not like they went and grabbed them and pulled them in the audience. Well, it could be a well, story hour, so... Oh, that they too. That the too. children were there. Yeah, that too. Yeah, the question is really, is drag completely inappropriate for children? Um, that's a, That seems to me, obviously, not the case. Uh, not the case at all. Someone posted this week, um, and I forgot, it's our parent, one of my uh, LGBT uh, parent groups I belong to, and she posted all these pictures of her kid that she has taken to several drag uh, story reading hours in libraries. And all it is, and she points out, is men um, dressed, overly dressed, from head to toe, covered up, and colorful, outlandish outfits reading books. That's all it is. I don't understand what the problem is. And I've been to one. I've taken my kid to one. That's all it is. I don't understand what the problem is. I think there's a history of drag queens performing in nightclubs uh, for adult audiences and making risque jokes, which perhaps wouldn't be at all appropriate for kids. But we're talking about uh, midnight shows uh, right. in the past. And, the and drag queen story hours are very different. Very different. Mm -hmm. And I've been to a million drag shows in nightclubs, and I've never seen a minor in the audience. So they can't get in anyway. <laughs> well, it does, it does strike me as, as so hypocritical when you have beloved movies like Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire that kids do watch. Or, or uh, Eddie Murphy's movies, uh, the, uh, the Clumps. Yeah. And Medea. Yeah, yeah, Medea, yeah. Medea. Let's go back a little farther. There's so much cross-dressing in Shakespeare. Can you not Absolutely. put on productions of As You Like It now? Right. Exactly. Right. Or the American classic. Everyone agrees is such a, a, an American you know, um, iconic film, Some Like It Hot, Absolutely. Is, is hot on Broadway right now. It's yeah. the so biggest hit on Broadway right now. You won't be able to bring it to Texas if this bill passes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My and parents took me to see Some Like It Hot when I was about 10. <laughs> now you could sue them. Yeah. And, le and let's not forget about the biggest, probably the most famous drag queen ever, RuPaul has brought this to mainstream like no other drag queen's ever been able to, and it's going on their what, 10th or 11th year of RuPaul's Drag Race. Everybody watches that. So what is that going to be taken off the air now in, in Texas? And before RuPaul, there was Dame Edna Etheridge, uh, yes. one of the funniest people in the world, absolutely, uh, who uh, performed for adults and kids alike and delighted everyone. Yep, and or I terrified everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I seem to recall a video of one 
Rudy Giuliani in drag being kissed by one Donald J. Trump. That's different. Oh, oh that's yeah. completely. Oh, I see. That's completely that's different. different. Yeah, that was for fun. Right, and all the rest of it is not for fun. No, it's serious. <laughs> but these bills are, in fact, really scary. Yeah, uh, they are. Uh, they have uh, they have a terrifying impact on the on the queer community, but they also have a silver lining, which uh, the Anita Bryant backlash in the 70s and even AIDS in the 80s had, which is that they unite the community. Uh, we tend to, especially after the, um, the legalization of same-sex marriage here, we tend to breathe a sigh of relief and think, wow, the fight is over. But the fight is never over, and it's good to be reminded of that. And it, it's not just us. I, I mean, I mean, just just last week, the end of last week, a lawmaker in Florida filed a bill that said young girls can't discuss their periods with each other in school. And you know, I love Karen Tumblety from USA Today said, "Well, should we just revert to calling it Aunt F a visit from Aunt Flo?" <laughs> Yeah, you know, because wow. that's what I mean. I can tell you all the stories about what girls talk about, but this is this is policing in people's personal lives where there is no business, and and that's the same with with drag. You never worried about drag shows before, you know. We've gone how many millennia now? Millennia. <laughs> drag shows have never been a problem, and drag's been around for millennia. Millennia. But my own feeling tends to be that the politicians who are uh, fomenting this kind of hatred aren't necessarily anti-drag or don't even care that much about drag themselves. They see drag, queerness, um, as a way of riling up their audience uh, and getting votes, uh, not really as a way of protecting children. And I'm glad you brought up the protecting children. So when I took my kid to the drag queen story reading hour at the library, my only concern were the protesters out there, not the drag queens. That was the scary part, the protesters. Okay, so the last drag queen story time that we went to... Mm -hmm. we yeah, baby was there too. The protesters, there were two sets of protesters. They were all there to protest the drag queens. They ended up protesting each other. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And it had something to do with abortion, or one group wasn't for it en enough, or, or against it enough, a and they were fighting with each other and kept the police busy. There's some kind of moral fable there. Yeah, there yeah. is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I want to get to your book. Uh, the name of the book is um, Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of uh, Drag. Who is Doris Fish? Doris Fish was a drag queen who was famous in Sydney in the uh, 70s and 80s. And um, was born in 1951, died of AIDS in 1991, and had a real effect on everyone who uh, was around him. I use the uh, pronoun him in the book because Doris was a uh, cis male uh, and always thought of himself as male. His uh, point in drag was never to pass for a woman, which he said would never have gotten him the attention he had a pathological need for. <laughs> Um, and the, um, the story was also, um, I knew it was a great personal story. Doris had an event-filled life, but it was also a way of looking at what happened to gay life between Stonewall in 1969 and Doris's death in 1991. Those were years of incredible change for gay people uh, in the Western world, and so it was a way of tracking those changes over those years. Mm -hmm. Now you said Sydney, was this in, in Australia? Yes, Doris was born and grew up in Australia and always retained an Australian accent. Is that where most of his uh, drag took off? I know he came to America eventually and performed at Castro, but was it mostly in Australia? Uh, when Doris was growing up in Sydney in the 60s, it was, as it remains, the drag capital of the world. Sydney has a long, long history of drag going back to the um, teens and 20s. Um, and the drag queens in Sydney, Doris would say, were like v 
Vogue models times 20. Uh, uh, she called them aggressively glamorous, uh, and they are. <laughs> well, no, that's fabulous. And you'll notice that I go back and forth uh, with pronouns, because, of course, when we knew Doris in the uh, 80s, we always uh, called her she, but then we always called all the gay men yeah, that we knew right, she, sure, and right, we called right. some of the straight men that we knew she. Yeah, we do the same thing. <laughs> pronouns have a lot more uh, gravity now than they did in those years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to say yeah. one of my favorite my, my favorite sort of famous quotes is um, a man in drag is funny a woman in drag is Armani <laughs> <laughs> um, so Doris came to San Francisco Roughly 1975. Uh, he went back and forth between the two countries for a few years, but in those years, um, Sydney was not regarded by young people there as the wonderful uh, world city it is today, mm -hmm. and they were looking for ways to get out, largely to London uh, and to New York. But Doris focused on San Francisco, uh, knowing uh, partly its gay history, and as soon as Doris settled in uh, San Francisco, he really enjoyed being a big fish in a little pond there. When did San Francisco become a gay mecca? Um, I think it started happening um, post-war when people started, uh, p after the Second World War, when uh, a and with the uh, Red Scare, when a lot of gay m um, men and women started getting kicked out of the military, they had uh, taken off from San Francisco in various ships and uh, recognized it as a pleasant place to live. And the population, there's an interesting statistic, the population of single people in San Francisco uh, in the 50s, something like tripled. So uh, it gradually uh, became known as a gay city, and by the 60s, the gay population Population had started to amass political power. Uh, the first San Franciscan, uh, the first gay American to run for political office was in San Francisco in the early 60s. And by the 70s, uh, the community had really coalesced into a political bloc, which politicians, including Dianne Feinstein, recognized. And from that, we have we have Harvey Milk, and that's the that's the milieu that Harvey Milk came out of. In fact, well, we had Harvey Milk first. <laughs> <coughs> yes, you did. Because he, well, not only did he go to my school, but he then moved down uh, when he graduated. He moved to Dallas. He hated Dallas, but he lived in Oak Lawn, uh, in an apartment complex on Fairmont and Turtle Creek that was just torn down. Um, Amazing that he didn't run for office here. He hated <laughs> Dallas. He had no intentions of staying. Yeah, he couldn't have done what he did and done it what he did in uh, San Francisco what he did if he did that here. Especially no the way our city government yeah. worked at the time. Yeah. Well, in fact, so, um, what happened in San Francisco, I think, is very similar to what happened in Dallas, which is that there were citywide uh, elections for city council, and then when the city went over to a um, system of electing supervisors from districts, mm -hmm. that was when Harvey was uh, elected, and I think something like that happened here in Dallas, too. Right. We went from, from um, at-large seats and essentially, you know, rich North Dallas men uh, won those seats, and then it went to 14 member districts, 14 single member districts across the city. And now we have, you can even make a living, you know, we have a, have a living wage for our council members so that everyone has a shot, you know, mm -hmm. to be the wealthy person getting $50 a meeting. <laughs> right. So anyway, Doris arrived in San Francisco in the mid-70s, won a talent contest to perform with the citizen, uh, with the city's uh, rock screwballs, the tubes, uh, started his show business career, was noticed, started doing shows on his own, and within a few years was the most famous drag queen in San Francisco. Hmm. And that's interesting. Um, the way you write about her, it's obvious that she's well known in San Francisco. And I was thinking about how it works for drag queens. Unless you're on RuPaul's Drag Race uh, and getting national attention now, you know, everybody in Dallas knows Cassie Nova or Jenna Skye. Those are just the names. 
If you were to go to Austin, they wouldn't know who they were, particularly unless they came up here for a weekend. Well, there's a whole drag circle or network. They have uh, regional competitions that have been going on for yeah. decades. Mm -hmm. My cousin used to be part of them. So if you're in that, you know these drag queens from other cities. But if, you do, if you're not, yeah, you're not going to know. If, if you're not, but... Yeah. You know, go to the bars and know who some of the drag queens are. You'll know your local drag queens. Yeah. So, and Doris was one of those, but rose to the top. Well, and not only that, Doris became famous in the gay community, but by the time of his death, he was really famous in the straight community, too. He was the most, uh, the best-known AIDS patient in San Francisco, and at the benefit for him uh, in November 1990, uh, the mayor of San Francisco, Art Agnos, issued a proclamation uh, declaring it Doris Fish Day in San Francisco. Uh, to which Doris uh, responded, does that mean every November 30th will be Doris Fish Day in San Francisco? <laughs> <laughs> Always grabbing for the max. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Doris also became well known, maybe not her name, mm -hmm. but became well known through the greeting cards that she did for West Graphics. Oh, she was, he was an artist too. Uh, he was a model. model. There was Ga a, oh, a small gotcha, greeting gotcha. card company in San Francisco called West Graphics that, um, as soon as it began to get a little larger, started looking for models and started using Doris. And once they started using Doris, um, the cards took off and were sold in basically every card store in the country that sold funny cards. And it was... They're in the, right, there are pictures of them in the book. Um, people all over America, uh, people all over middle America, were getting birthday cards and anniversary cards and get well cards with Doris's crazy face on uh, the front. And Doris was really a master of cosmetics and a master of disguises. So the cards appeared to have different people on each one. They were, they were funny cards. They were meant to be funny. But what that actually means to me is that camp humor was slowly making its way into the national consciousness, uh, just as gay people in general were making their way into the national consciousness. Mm -hmm. We need to take a break. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3. KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Leron Landis and the late Patty Fink. Our guests are Craig Seligman and Silvana Nova. Uh, and uh, we're talking about Craig's new book, Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. Hi, this is Candy Markham, and I listen to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. Listen. And this is Lambda Weekly, and we're talking about uh, Craig Seligman's new book, Who Does That Bitch I'm Think? I'm Christina from the Orange, and I listen to Lambda. Okay, I'm not sure why this machine is doing that. Spooky. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> um, we're talking about Craig's new book, Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Uh, which takes place in the, in the 70s and 80s, mostly in San Francisco, and it revolves around uh, drag queen Doris Fish. Go ahead if you don't have questions. No, go ahead. Okay, so I was just I wanted to go back. I know earlier you mentioned we were talking about pronouns. He he did identify he was a cisgender man, um, and I remember um, reading about another uh, famous or infamous drag queen, Divine, and Divine made it clear if you've read some of his stuff, um, he was not he did not see himself as a drag queen. He was an actor um, that just happened to take off doing drag. And same thing with RuPaul. RuPaul says he just does it for fun and it gets him money. He's that he's not a, not a she. He's a he. Um, so I wonder, did Doris ever think of, uh, did he talk about or express how this was just fun for him and made him money? It was just uh, an artistic expression. Um, Doris was incredibly 
uh, or maybe not so incredibly thoughtful about these things. Doris started doing drag, he always admitted, to get attention. Doris loved attention. Uh, and Doris did not think of himself uh, as a woman. But at the same time, uh, Doris appeared on a talk show in Pittsburgh in 1987, and he talked about gender fluidity in a way that I don't think anyone had before. He said some people are 99% this and some people are 99% that and some of us are just fiddling around somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. uh, which I think was incredibly prescient of mm -hmm. them because mm -hmm. it was I think five years before Kate Bornstein actually talked about the idea of being neither one gender nor the other. Mm -hmm. So uh, although Doris was uh, a comedian in drag and looked on himself that way, he was he was also a very spiritual person, and he thought about what drag might have meant to him. There's a lot of visionary happening right there um, in terms of where drag has been and gone, um, and also our attitudes toward gender and gender roles. Um, that's the, I think that's pretty amazing. That's um, um, ahead of his time. Oh, there's no question. No question that Doris was ahead of his time. He was a real leader, and he was a real leader in the idea of visibility, too, especially during the 70s when gay politicians were terrified about drag queens being out in the front of gay pride marches or protests because, of course, the TV camera loves them. And... Uh, gay politicos wanted everyone to see us as normal and just like everybody else. Drag queens were saying, well, we're not just like everybody else and we don't want to be like everybody else. We have the right to be ourselves and that's what we're fighting for. Yeah, a lot of people thought that uh, drag queens, especially gay, gays and the gay movement, a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> so during the 70s, that was a time of change, just like the 20s now seems to be a time of change for uh, the LGBT community, especially the LGBTD community. Um, what was going on that caused this change in attitude, change in, uh, in the community? Well, as anyone who is old enough to have lived through those years remembers, uh, after Stonewall... Ron and Patty are. <laughs> <laughs> and me. <laughs> now, after Stonewall in 1969, there was pretty much general progress uh, across the nation in gay issues. Town after town passed gay rights ordinances. And when the city council in our... Uh, county Council in Dade County, Florida, tried to pass or did pass an ordinance. Uh, the singer Anita Bryant, a former Miss America and famous for her orange juice commercials, rose up and led an anti-gay movement. She said, "Gay people can't reproduce, so they have to recruit." She used everything in her power to scare people, and suddenly there was a tremendous gay backlash. Uh, and it was used very much by right-wing politicians. Just the way it's being used now. And I think, as I said earlier, uh, it was terrifying at the time. Uh, we were all very depressed, but we can see in retrospect that what Anita Bryant did for the gay community, uh, or I should say the queer community, uh, it was to unite it. Yes, I think that and even probably now what's happening will be, gal will be seen as galvanizing moments. And um, I see Anita Bryant as being more important as far as organizing across the country than uh, Stonewall was. Stonewall was something we heard about. Anita Bryant was something that seemed to affect us. And here in Dallas, Dallas Gay and Lesbian Alliance was created as a result of Anita, Anita Bryant. It was a direct response. And I think, too, there's a lot of parallels today with the Anita Bryant's out there, um, there is a, um, a, a vein of uh, hyper, almost faux, exaggerated patriotism about their hatred of us. Um, and then also this religious component that it's, you know, somehow, you know, um, morally right to ostracize us and 
pass laws against us and, and generally express their bigotry in every way they can. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yes, all of that. <laughs> all of that, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, My Bible says Adam and Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, yesterday there was a protest downtown against all this anti-trans and anti-drag uh, nonsense going on in the legislature. About 100 people showed up. Uh, it was interesting. I'd say about half of the people there were allies and not LGBT people. Because I think people understand that this is eventually going to affect their lives, too. This is not really about drag. This is about the government uh, putting its fingers into your life. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether you're uh, male or female or somewhere in between, whether you're gay or straight or somewhere in between. Uh, the government wants or is trying to control what you do. And that's scary. What I liked about this protest was there was only one protester. <laughs> no, one anti. Uh, oh, one counter protester. One counter protester. One counter protester. One counter protester. Uh, at some of the events at some of the bars, there have been more than that just on Cedar Springs. Mm -hmm. So to have only one person show up, I thought that was pretty good. Well, it's kind of a, a little bit of an affirmation. I used to think it was we, we had failed if we didn't draw any counter-protesters. <laughs> I think we can safely predict it's going to get worse before it gets better, but that doesn't mean it won't get better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So you mentioned allies, so that made me think, I just skimming through the book, um, if I read it correctly, um, looks like Doris's brother came to one of his shows. Doris came from a Catholic family. Uh, his parents were conservative Catholics. Uh, he had uh, five siblings, uh, and they were all incredibly supportive of him. Oh, okay, great. No, no, that's what I was going to ask. His mother became almost as well known in the gay community in Sydney as Doris was because she was always at his shows and when he was on floats in the Mardi Gras parade, which I should talk about because that itself is an incredible phenomenon, Mildred was on the floats with him. Oh, how awesome. And again, you got to remember when this was. Right. This would have been by the uh, by the 80s, uh, when the parade in Sydney had grown from uh, just a few protesters marching to um, hundreds of people marching and tens of thousands of people observing. Silvana and I just got back from World Pride in Sydney a few weeks ago, and the parade had um, half a million people on the sidelines watching mm -hmm. and cheering. Wow. That's amazing. And it, it has become this this worldwide, um, you know, venue for LGBTQ everything. It is really one of the great World Pride parades for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that it's held at night, so there's a real party atmosphere. Uh, another is that in the 80s, um, it had three artistic directors, Peter Tully, Ron Smith, and David McDermott, and it had Doris. And Doris was an incredibly um, um, facile, uh, an incredibly uh, expressive artist. And so the parades really became huge art pieces for the public, huge community art pieces. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. and what an outlet for... Um, so much expression. Oh, absolutely. The Mardi Gras workshop was really where the gay community came together to, uh, to express itself to the public. And there are floats uh, reaching back to the early 80s that people still remember, like the Fishmobile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the head of Fred Niles. Right. The, um, the Australian equivalent of Anita Bryant, Fred Nile, who is still alive and just retired from par Parliament in the, 880s, in the late 80s, was represented in the parade uh, with his head being carried, uh, a huge representation of his head on a silver charger by the si uh, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. <laughs> 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 and Doris was responsible for that. So, <laughs> one thing when you have a parade that's that big, again, it's not just the LGBT community that's there. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. People go because it's a out. spectacle. Yeah. yeah, And they bring their kids. Their kids who, I guess, if they come to Dallas, could sue them. Could sue them, right. 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 <laughs> and it brings in a lot of money. 
Absolutely. It's, Sydney has become very supportive of uh, the parade because, um, because it's probably the city's biggest moneymaker. And by the way, I should explain that when I say Mardi Gras, it has nothing to do with the Catholic holiday. They, uh, even when the parade was held in June, it was called Mardi Gras because that was the Australian word for costumed parade. Mm. Huh. Oh. But now it's held in late. February, early March, because the weather's nice. It's summer there, and then yeah. it is close to the uh, the other Mardi Gras. So, so I want to go back to his family. I'm not a drag queen, but uh, when I <laughs> thank you, you must think I'm pretty. But when I came out as gay to them, um, my parents' only real um, negative reaction was, why didn't you tell us sooner? Uh, I think Stonewall happened when it did, not, not just because gay people had had it and were ready to rise up, but because their own parents' generation had encouraged them not to be gay, but to have positive feelings about sex. Uh, they were reacting to the Victorianism of their own parents. So I don't, I think during the 70s and 80s uh, in the newspapers we read many, many stories about how horribly some families reacted because of course those are always better news stories. But I really think that Doris and Silvana and I were in the majority in having families that supported us. I think hmm. um, one of the things that led Doris's family to be supportive was that Doris got brutally beaten up in the mm. 70s and was hospitalized and his father was horrified and really he was a w government official. Was it a gay bashing? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. Wow. You want to talk about that? Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, Doris was attacked, uh, like a lot of gay people have been attacked. Yeah, and his father, who was in the government, still couldn't get the cops to do anything about it, and eventually came to the conclusion that it was the cops who had done it. Um, and wow. 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 And and yet, you know, none of us are shocked upon. Somebody suggesting it might be the cops, right? Um, but I think that was a turning point for his family because yeah, that was yeah. early on. Yeah, that was. In but the I agree with you 70s. that most of my friends, when they came out to their families, it wasn't terrible news to any of them. Or a big surprise. I, 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 I think it might be generational. My experience is vastly different from y'all's stories. Most of my friends and I. I, I can't count how many coming out was not a pleasant experience, including uh, my own family. I'm not saying it was easy to do. No, no, no I know you're not saying it's easy. I'm just saying, but most parents that I know, it was not a good experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we don't have any kind of statistics about these things. Right. So I'm only going really on my impressions. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, in the same way, I think Doris and I uh, and Silvana um, somehow managed to grow up without shame about being gay. It, it just... I'm ashamed about many things, but I'm not ashamed. <laughs> but I'm not ashamed of being gay, and wasn't even when I was 10 years old. And I think that that's uh, an experience common to many people in my generation. But again, I can't actually back that up with numbers. Right. And yet, there was a in the last um, Gallup poll. Um, it's actually, you can see this dramatic decline from young people to older generations and who are willing to come out to a pollster. Because mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you went by only 65 plus, for example, that says we are 2% you know, of the population. Um, and today, I mean, the same Pew, uh, Gallup poll that came out last February um, says we're uh, on, on average at 7.1 now up from 5.6% of the population, but the Gen, Gen Zers are 20.1%. Mm. So one in five Gen Zers right. self-identifies as LGBTQ. So we're doing well, a good job five. in recruiting. <laughs> Thank you, Anita Bryan. But I also think that's because Gen Zers have more <coughs> feelings of freedom to explore than we did. I don't think there are necessarily more 
queer people now. Right, I just I agree. think that among teenagers, when you really don't yet know who you are, there's much more freedom to try to figure out who right, you are than right. you used to. I agree. Oh, I, I don't think the numbers have changed across the board. I think the willingness to come out, there's so much. I mean, we're one of the communities that coming out's a thing. Right. Um, you know, um, when you're when you're black, you don't come out. You know right, what I mean? People right. know you are. So right. we're we're this community that you have to, you know, tell somebody. Unless you're like David, and everybody knows David's gay. <laughs> um, I've <laughs> never had to tell anyone I was gay ever. <laughs> Right. But you know what I mean. I was like, we're all still here in the same proportions. It's just a matter of younger people feel more freedom um, okay, to step out. So at my wedding, my cousins came in from New York. And uh, before the ceremony, I went over to them and I said, you know what? I don't think I've ever actually come out to you. And they just laughed and they said, oh, David, we grew up with you. <laughs> Which is exactly the... Um, reaction that Doris's brothers had when uh, their mother said, I have to tell you something about Philip, which was Doris's uh, birth name. Uh, he's gay. And they looked up and said, uh-huh. <laughs> 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 right. What are you going to tell us? <laughs> That's too funny. So I wanted to talk just a little about Silvana's relationship with Doris, since sure. that's the way I got to know Doris. We have uh, about a minute oh. before we have to take a break. So why don't you start, and we'll break. I was, because Jackie had already written letters describing me and all of that. <laughs> so that's how I first got to know Doris. And you did drag. Oh, yeah, I was doing drag. But it was a very different... There were like two different drag communities in San Francisco. Uh, one was the one I was part of, was very political, street activism, you know, very out there about being non-conforming and doing like what was... Bending. Bending. Okay. So, and the second one? The second group? And the other group was more just, you know, crazy queens who were just doing shows and having fun. I mean, we were all doing shows and having fun, but the other one wasn't directly political, wasn't making always political statements. But of course, just by doing drag, you're being political. Right, right. We need to take a break. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. We'll be back with more right after this. This is Raphael McDonald from Resource Center Dallas. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. And this is... It's not. Good. Um, this is uh, Lambda Weekly, and we're talking to Craig Seligman and his husband, Silvano Nova. Uh, Craig's new book is Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag. Um... Doris was in a movie, produced it, uh, called... Wrote it, starred in it, uh, art, di directed. Did, art directed it. And never saw it in a theater. Never right. Didn't live to see it. What's the uh, name of the movie? Called Vegas in Space. Yes, the movie came about because Doris and his housemates on Oak Street in San Francisco had thrown a party called Vegas in Space. Doris uh, had gone to New York and came back with $1,000 worth of mylar and fun fur. And they decorated <laughs> the house and they painted themselves up with fluorescent uh, paints and makeup and lighted the house in black lights. And when the party was over, uh, Doris looked around and said, this is too good to tear down. Let's make a movie. The idea was to do a 15-minute short and show it at the local Roxy Theater or somewhere like that. Um, Doris had no idea what went into making a movie. And of course, <laughs> in the 80s, what went into making a movie was a lot more than what goes into uh, now. You, can't, you couldn't use your iPhone right. or your computer to edit the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very expensive proposition. Anyway, when these queens saw the 
rushes from the movie. They got so excited that the 15-minute movie turned into a feature film. I took them about three years to film it. Eventually, they got every drag queen in San Francisco, including Silvana, <laughs> to participate in the film. And then it took them many, many more years to raise the money to edit it, to get music for the soundtrack, and so forth. And tragically, Doris died two months, mm, sorry, four. four months before the film premiered in September 1991. Did it get any uh, distribution or just... Yes. In fact, they took it to the Sundance Film Festival. It had a sold-out screening. It was eventually, and still is, distributed by Troma Films, if you know that crazy little distribution mm -hmm. Uh, company, they uh, they distribute uh, very odd and offbeat films, and I thought for years that the movie had died a kind of quiet death after they finally got it out. But in fact, it's turned into a major cult movie, especially among drag queens, as you might uh, as you might imagine. A lot of kids saw it. Here we are coming back to kids. Uh, here's the danger. They saw the movie on late night TV when they were 15 years old and said, there are other people like me. I want to do that. And it was especially important for the kids who saw it in the 80s because all they were getting about uh, gay people was AIDS. So mm -hmm. here was an outer space musical comedy full of drag queens set in the 23rd century. It was a very different take on what being queer meant. When you say that it was expensive and you don't do it, you know, on your iPhone like you can now, uh, a whole reel of black and white film came back blank. Yes, that's right. They were learning uh, to fly the plane as they were flying it. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't always work out so well. So how long was this housed in Mylar and Fur? <laughs> oh, well, the, you know, the... the <coughs> that was just the first few scenes, and then they took, um, Doris uh, was incredibly uh, inventive at taking garbage and turning it into scenery. <laughs> at a certain point, they had to find some uh, jewels uh, that had been stolen from the uh, Empress Nueva Gabor, and Doris just grabbed some stuff off the mantelpiece and said, here, use these. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. She also um, did great miniatures of the little city Vegas in space that were made of perfume bottles and lipstick tubes. Uh, and they, they I really know what Vegas looks like. Yes, they're one of the best things about the movie. Yeah, the miniatures are great. When the spaceship flies in over the planet and it's there's smoke and color. Oh, wow. And, and it's got all to this, see this junk things tarted up. But in fact, when we were in Sydney, there was a celebratory uh, screening of the movie attending by, attended by many drag queens. Uh, and it still looks pretty good on the screen. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, I don't think you've ever seen anything like it on the screen before. And it's, uh, you, can, you can find it on Amazon Prime, I think. Okay. So uh, did they ever make their money back on it? I think they barely made their money back. Uh, they certainly didn't get rich off it. The director, Philip R. Ford, and Doris's colleague, uh, Miss X, uh, the, the two producers who were left alive, uh, spent uh, a couple of years going around the world promoting it and being invited to film festivals. And they had some fun with it, but uh, they're not sitting back on their assets these days. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, I made a note to myself, Doris's wedding in 1981, and I don't know what I was referring to. Uh, that would have been uh, a green card marriage that Doris oh, had right, okay. in 1981 to a uh, lesbian friend. That was back in the years when you could do green card marriages. Um, and that allowed him to, uh, to continue staying in the United States because he didn't have a permanent visa after that he did. Interesting. Mm. Did, did, he, did they ever get divorced prior to his passing or they stayed? Uh, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to that question okay. because I don't think either of them was, since uh, he was a gay man and she was a lesbian, neither of them could conceive an era when they might actually be able to get married. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if a divorce uh, would have even been considered necessary. Mm -hmm. And they remained friends. Yes. Awesome, awesome. Mm. That's, that's fabulous. So I'm just thinking about the movie. Uh, I really can't wait to see it because there's not a lot of movies.
movies just based on what drag queens. I, I mean, of course, we got uh, Priscilla Queen of the Desert as a huge blockbuster. Um, and then what's the that what's the American one? Um, oh, uh, to, uh, Julie Newmar. Yeah, Julie Newmar. But other than too that, Wong yeah, Too Wong Fu. Yeah, yeah. I just have to warn you, uh, when you do watch the movie, it does require a bit of patience. Um, <laughs> the, script, the script was written in a couple of afternoons. They didn't really envision what it was going to become. Uh, as Mario Puzo is said to have said about The Godfather, if I had known what it was going to become, I would have written it better. Uh, what's amazing about the movie truly is the way it looks. Uh, one of the stars of the movie says the best way to watch it is with the sound turned down. If any <laughs> Anyone has ever seen the gay cult film Pink Narcissus, which was filmed by a mad drag queen in New York, uh, James Bidgood, uh, in the 60s, all in his own apartment, even though it seems to take place in huge landscapes. I think that's a comparable kind of movie. Okay. Okay. Interesting. interesting. So interesting. Um, Doris was diagnosed with HIV in 1986. Uh, talk about how that changed his life. Well, as we know, HIV changed everybody's mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And Doris, who was completely open about everything in his life, uh, including the fact that he made his money as a sex worker, uh, and when I say open, I mean he wrote letters to his family about uh, how much money he had made hooking that week, um, was not open uh, for the first few years about uh, having AIDS. I think possibly that was because his uh, his diagnosis wasn't positive. I think possibly it was because he uh, he thought his career would be damaged, both as a sex worker and as a performer. Uh, but when he did become open, he became the most famous uh, AIDS patient in San Francisco, uh, a constant performer at AIDS benefits, and uh, a real example of courage to other AIDS patients. Doris began writing a column in the San Francisco Sentinel, one of San Francisco's gay newspapers, and it became a must-read uh, really for every queer person in San Francisco. It was funny, it was sad, uh, it was crazy. Doris had a thousand voices, just like he had a thousand faces, and he was able to show people the kind of life you could continue to live while you had AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, San Francisco did AIDS differently than most of us did. Um, there's a story that you tell in the book that uh, Supervisor Harry Britt uh, put together a budget for what was needed to care for all the people who had HIV. Uh, he brought the budget to Diane Feinstein, who was mayor at the time, and she said, fund everything. Uh, Diane Feinstein was an incredible supporter of the queer community during AIDS. And one of the things I wanted to do in writing the book was uh, bring out another side of the story of AIDS. Because the side of it that has been most recorded and that most of us know about is New York's closeted gay mayor, Ed Koch, his refusal to have anything to do with uh, the AIDS community, the New York City government's failure to do anything about the disease, the federal government's failure to do anything about the disease. Yeah. But there was this other city on the other coast, San Francisco, in which the government came together, the politicians and doctors and queer community and straight community came together. Uh, and it was really inspiring. Uh, a friend of mine quotes Dickens, the best of times, the worst of times. It was also a period of great rapprochement for the uh, community of gay men and lesbians who had been at loggerheads for uh, reasons we all know about uh, in the early 80s. And when it became important for the community to unite behind people who were ill, they did. And it was really inspiring. And so a lot of people think it must have been terrible to be in San Francisco in those years when everybody was dying. And of course, on a certain level, it was. It was. But on another level, it was inspiring. And the drag community did a lot to support support you know when you said there were two two groups of drag queens we had two groups of drag queens here we had the ones that were just putting on shows and then we had the uh, ones who were supporting all the AIDS agencies well I was talking about earlier than that 
I think during the AIDS thing, everybody. Yeah. But in fact, everyone did. My impression, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, David, was that those uh, drag queens who were putting on shows were often putting on shows that were benefits for yeah. uh, for the uh, for people with AIDS fundraisers. Uh, mm -hmm. Fundraisers. Thank yeah. you. Right for people with AIDS, for the AIDS organizations. Uh, just anything and everything that had to do with it. And by the way, I should add that I do think that this period uh, was more important than any other in changing public perceptions toward drag queens because all of a sudden they were community supporters. They weren't just people out to get attention. They were people out to help. And I think that changed attitudes both inside and outside the queer community. Mm -hmm. I remember a number of years ago we had Cleve Jones on the show, uh -huh. and he was in town, and we'd, we'd had him on, I think, a time before that, and he told a story of the AIDS quilt, the Names, the Names Project, um, that involved Diane Feinstein, and uh, she had gone to the Parks Department in D.C. about putting the quilt on the, on the mall, the National Mall in D.C., and um, she just, uh, with without missing a beat and no change in expression, uh, said yes, you know, they were all concerned about the lawn and would they turn the the the, the pieces every twenty minutes so it wouldn't press on the grass and she absolutely said yes to all of that and with no intention of of doing that. <laughs> 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 because it was ludicrous to say they were really gonna turn not. all of them every twenty minutes. Right, right, right. Um, and through the night and everything, you know. Um, but she was really instrumental in helping to get that project on the on the mall, and it did it did open eyes and change minds and hearts um, in in that moment too. So that, that she had already moved to to her Senate seat in D.C. at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so she was very instrumental, I think, in in getting it. She got it about what was needed and what needed to be done, and and how to get those resources. Yeah, that's not how we did AIDS here. No. no. <laughs> We sued our way. Um, <laughs> that works, too. <laughs> and it did. It did. There was a fundraiser for Doris in 1990. Um, that's the fundraiser from which I took the title of my book. The fundraiser was called Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Um, which was obviously a tongue-in-cheek uh, way of paying tribute to Doris with drag queen talk. Uh, San another thing that distinguished San Francisco was that early on a um, director and impresario named Mark Hustis had had the idea of instead of holding memorial services, holding parties for people with AIDS or benefits for for people with AIDS uh, where there could be performances and we could raise money for them. And it was kind of like they got to go to their own funerals. Um, they got to see everybody appreciating them and singing and dancing for them. And Doris's was really the culmination of that period. It was a great, um, it was a great evening that ended with Doris's final performance, uh, which you can find on YouTube and uh, which, was, which was really moving. Mm. That's amazing. It's like it's uh, more more than a roast, <laughs> <laughs> or more than a roast. Right, Sometimes right. it was a roast too. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are just about out of time. Um, May I just mention, David, yes. that I'll be reading uh, from the book tomorrow night at Deep Vellum Books uh, tomorrow Monday, uh, the twentieth, and I hope you'll be there. Seven oh, awesome. p.m. Awesome. That's and fantastic. The book is out already, isn't it? Uh, the book came out at the end of February. It's oh, okay. uh, in bookstores. Okay. Good. And orderable uh, online. And now our books have to come out, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, and hopefully you won't get banned up on a ban list. <laughs> I want to thank you for coming in for uh, our show. Oh, this has been so much thank fun. Thank you both. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. And come back again. Okay. <laughs>